Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. In today's interview with Matt Dobschutz, you will learn why porn is actually primarily not your problem, it's your solution. And you will understand exactly what that means. And also, I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing Matt's story and some of his vulnerability. He gets very, very candid about some of his specific sexual fantasies and the types of porn that he has pursued and also how he has taken a path of redemption, which just gets me really fired up. So I know you're going to love it. We have some fun at the beginning and then it's really meaningful as time goes on. Uh, Matt's awesome, and I hope you will love this podcast as well as his own podcast, which is kind of legendary, Porn Free Radio. Let's go. Here's Matt Dobschutz. Hey, thanks a lot. Now, I know we're on Husband Material. Uh, I know something about you um, that we have in common um, that has to do with marriage. Any ideas what it is? Married a redhead? Uh, no. I, my wife's Korean, so no, that's that, that, that's not it. Any other guesses? I don't know. You got me. We were both married on June 5th. Really? Yeah, me, June 5th, 1999, and then you, June 5th, 2016, right? Yes. 17 years apart. Yeah. So we were both husband material. Yes. Awesome. I just heard that in a pod- one of your old podcasts, and I was like, June 5th? Wow. So porn, uh, porn history isn't the only thing we have in common. We have a shared <laughs> yeah. anniversary. So that's great. Well, I can even remember that. That'll be easy to remember. Matt, it would be great to have you share a little bit more about what people need to know. Who is Matt, and what's your story? Well, the story is getting longer and longer the older I get. So, um, uh, I, you know, simple, simple, uh, highlights of my life. Uh, I, I was born in the South, uh, Southern United States, uh, Tennessee, I lived in Florida for a while. Uh, pretty significant was, uh, a move to Chicago when I was 12, right before I turned 13. And, uh, I've been in Chicago ever since. And, uh, you know, coming at such a pivotal age, that's right. When, uh, the Cubs got good, the bears got good. Uh, so I just kind of the bulls later in the nineties got good. So, um, I became a huge Chicago sports fan. I love Loyola university, Chicago, where I went and uh, my brother and I did a, a whole season of Loyola basketball podcasting. We podcast after every game. And, uh, so we did lots of sound samples there and lots of stuff from, from that one. So that was fun. Um, it was fun to do a podcast, as you might know, uh, doing a podcast on porn recovery, uh, can be really fun and rewarding, uh, but telling people at like dinner parties that your podcast is a porn podcast, uh, kind of is a real record scratch sometimes. So it was nice yeah. to do a podcast that people were not ashamed to know that, the, that someone knew they listened to it. I remember going to like Loyola games and fans were like high-fiving me. And I thought, this is amazing. I'm getting high-fived by people in public for my podcast, which has never happened. I get lots of praise and emailed, but I don't get a lot of like high-fives at church. Yeah, I resonate with that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, like you at least have husband material. It sounds like it could be other things. Yeah. But 
when, when, when you tell someone you have a podcast, the first question is what's the name of the podcast? And I always have to say porn free radio, you know, which is like, <laughs> great. Uh, so, and then the same with the book. Hey, I just wrote a book. What's the book? Well, <laughs> so exactly. One thing I love about the book is this first big sentence you have on the back saying you'll never quit porn if you believe it's the problem. Porn is the solution. What do you mean by that? That quote comes from from uh, probably chapter one or chapter two, and there's actually another word in it. I, we didn't put it on the back of the book. It's um, uh, I, I actually say porn for us is the solution. And so my whole book is written for guys who have either used porn or been using porn and want to quit using porn. And what's really important when you're using is to understand you're using for a reason. Whereas I think a lot of the sources and you know, you, you started getting sober longer later than when I did, but even probably back in 2014 or 2013, when you were kind of looking for help, um, you know, a lot of people pathologized the problem of porn addiction. I mean, it, it, it essentially was porn was this hor horrible enemy. It was this, you know, immoral thing. Uh, and then, you know, you were probably back at the, in the days when everyone was talking about how it changes your brain and uh, dopamine addiction and all this kind of stuff. There was, there was this thing and it was kind of like when you're struggling you're like, oh, great. I'm, I'm supporting the trafficking of women. I'm messing up my brain and, uh, no one, <laughs> I'm immoral. And, and, and so you start going, why do I, why do I have this in my life? Like, like, why would anyone want this? Well, it's important to realize there was things that we get out of it that for us, we're using it for a reason. And so that's, that's what I really want to say. It's funny. One of the first people who um, gave me some negative feedback about the book was a partner who was very traumatized by her husband's porn use. And she said, well, you're just giving a, you know, a free pass to addicts to do whatever they want. Of course, she didn't read the book. So uh, it sort of annoyed me. But, but I just thought it was really important to write a book from a we perspective, not me telling, not an expert telling someone what's wrong with them, but actually saying, hey, there's a reason you're using, we're going to figure that out. To, to even say you hate porn sometimes is kind of a little bit of a stretch for a lot of guys. The fact is, I don't hate porn. I, I, I love porn. Porn doesn't serve me. Porn didn't meet my needs. There were a whole bunch of costs from my relationship with porn. But, you know, put a gun to my head. I don't hate it. Like, I, I told that the other day to someone. You tie me down and make me watch porn. It's not going to be, like, the worst thing in the world for me. Because it's been something that I got comfort from, something I escaped with. It was very numbing. I, I've yet to find anything in life that feels as all-encompassing and, and numbing as, as porn was for me and, and sort of like almost going into another world when I was in porn. I've, I've, I've actually, you know, recently been thinking about uh, how I think and how I process things. And I, I think I probably have some uh, ADHD that wasn't diagnosed. And I, I was thinking, you know, porn was probably a survival technique for my noisy brain growing up. Uh, a, a very calming thing. And I never put that connection to, I just put that connection like in the last couple of months that, that, wow, it wasn't just that it was, it felt good and I liked it, but it actually probably served something to calm myself.
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's another thing we have in common, especially when I hit puberty. I had also moved across the country, actually moved to a different country and dealing with all of that trauma and having ADD and hitting puberty, it all became a perfect storm. And porn was kind of like the eye of the storm. It was like that calm place. And it was my solution too. Yeah. And that was another thing I just started thinking about. I was meeting with a counselor recently. You know, this sounds like a lot, but uh, in the first 12, uh, first 12 years of school, I went to eight or nine different schools. It just, it, it, you know, now a couple of them were, you know, going from, uh, you know, high school to or grammar school to high school and that kind of thing. But the moving around, we moved in some significant years and I was starting over a lot. And I made friends and I had a lot of survival skills. It's probably why I like stand-up comedy. I like funny things. And that's why I like music and sports because you can relate to people with all that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot of things that people liked and could talk about stuff and had all these little survival techniques. But how did I survive some of the loneliness and some of that some of that pain of 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 not being attached to anybody? I'm sure porn fit right in, just like you. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, I remember I had discovered it when I was a kid, but when I really started using it, it was right about those years when I was like 12, 13, living in the city and kind of managing puberty and being now in the city of Chicago and with a Southern accent and all that kind of stuff. So you, yeah, I heard your story too, right? You had the Canadian accent and you were in Texas. So it was yes. like a little bit of a, <laughs> like the same. I was an alien. Yeah, exactly. I dropped my accent quickly. Like I, I, I got, I got my brother had it much longer, and um, you know they called him Country Boy and Duke's Hazard, and it took a while for him. But me, I probably in the first couple of months, I was like, oh, I'm from Chicago. Like I, yeah, started talking like I was from Chicago. And we're getting into the story, the story behind our sexual brokenness, the story that set us up to use porn as a solution which is so important. There's a quote that I want to read from your book that that I absolutely loved. You said, when we make porn the problem, it distracts us from our real needs or worse, it makes our needs the enemy. All too often in our attempts to hate porn, we end up hating our legitimate needs. It's hard for me to respond to that because I'm like, I, I I so wholeheartedly agree with that because I wrote it. But I mean, this is one of the challenges I, f- I have had with uh, purity culture and some of the, the battle methodology. Yeah, the battle. I call it the military mindset. Yeah, when we, when we kind of instruct men to think of, of this as just a battle, you know, what happens when there's these needs? the interpretation you can draw, uh, come to is don't have needs, Mm -hmm. right? Well, needs, if needs are messy and I don't know how to deal with them and they're embarrassing and they're unacceptable, then I'm going to push them down and I'm going to, and I'm going to show one thing and I'm going to show people this, this nice guy image or whatever. And then on the inside, I'm going to have all this mess, you know, that really destroys us. Um, I, I was just uh, reading uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover. I've been thinking about this, his idea of the nice guy syndrome. And he was kind of talking about one of the things about nice guys, a lot of Christian guys fall into this category, is that on the surface, they're nice. They they kind of put on this face of like they're you know helpful and supportive and this and that. 
but he said they're inherently dishonest. To be a nice guy, to project this nice front, what you end up doing is hiding all of your needs, your wounds, your brokenness, your addictions. You hide everything that's unacceptable. And, and so you create a life of dishonesty. Uh, and uh, I just really was, I was really moved by that idea that it's not just that we're hiding sin. It's not just that we're hiding this, this thing that we're embarrassed about in our porn use, but we're hiding all these other parts of ourselves and we're leg- and living kind of a fake life. I resonate with that so much. Yeah. And when you do that, you, you know, this, you, you end up feeling alone. Like at your core, you feel unlovable. You feel completely on your own and isolated. What do you do when you feel that? Well, you start looking for a solution like porn, which exactly has sort of a false intimacy and a sense of it's it's so numbing and so you know comforting and and secure that of course that's what comes out. So so that's one of the the costs of our of, of our dishonesty of hiding all our needs is we end up then wallowing in those kind of needs with things like addictions and escape. Right. If those needs have no place to go in my nice guy persona, then where are they going to go? <laughs> like, there has to be a place where I don't have to be Mr. Nice Guy. And for some of us, the only place like that in our lives is porn. Yeah. And, and you see guys, I've seen this with you know, even Christian guys I've been working with, you know, guys going to, you know, porn that has a bunch of power dynamics in it and it's like well what do you think you're trying to get out of this when you're you know watching porn that has aggressive men in it or or women that are being kind of you know misused well it's it's like you're trying to you're trying to to um feel powerful or you're trying to deal with anger that's unacceptable to show in your nice guy image and of course you're you're eroticizing your need to be angry or your need to stand up for yourself or be powerful. It makes so much sense. And there was one part in the book where you talked about a particular type of porn that you liked and how you discovered the needs underneath it. I see you smiling a little bit. I knew this question was coming. So, um, (laughs) well, yeah, I mean, it was one of these situations where I was working with a therapist and, um, you know, it was a very simple exercise. He he asked me to think of a genre of porn that I liked or that I was drawn to and, uh, you know, basically journal about what needs might be being expressed in that pursuit. And um, I, I put this in the book and I went back to, I was at a bed and breakfast. I was actually at a, it was at an intensive in Colorado and so I went back to my bed and breakfast and I remember even laying on the bed. It was like one of these fancy bed and breakfasts with like a quilt. And I remember laying on the quilt on the pillow and immediately uh, a very niche type of porn came up in my head. It was uh, at the time I was searching for pictures of a certain ethnic group. And it's funny, I didn't even really know anybody in this ethnic group and didn't really have any I, I honestly had no uh, real understanding or anything. Like, I don't know why I was drawn to this particular ethnic group. And uh, so I'm, I'm searching for these pictures and I'm searching for pictures of older women, actually kind of like mother types or aunt types. 
in this particular ethnic group, which is, it's, this is, this is hard to, to, to get out. I'm not embarrassed by it, but, but it is interesting. So I was just journaling about it and immediately I connected two things. One, this, this ethnic group has a very soothing way of speaking. And I realized, oh my gosh, that is so, even back then, I, I wasn't even as well-read as I am now. Back then I knew, oh my God, that's like a child that wants to hear a soothing, calming, feminine voice, like mother's voice, right? So that was the first thing I I put it together. And then the second thing was, because they were kind of older and more ant-like, they were more normal sized and shaped and maybe a little chubby and at different points and things like that. And And I realized, oh, they're just, they, their bodies felt comforting, you know, like they could hug you or they could, you know, hold you that type of thing. And so I realized there were those two things, the, the voice, and then sort of almost like a little extra, you know, for hugging <laughs> that, that, that was what I was, and again, that was back to nurture. It was such a clear need for nurture. Now, I, like everybody else, you know, am drawn to different types of porn. So there's, I mean, I could do this with, you know, the idea of, of some sort of perfect 10 type person. Well, well, probably what I want there is to feel good enough as a man. Like if she were with me, then what would that say about me? Or, you know, a power dynamic type of thing or, you know, but for me, nurture, eroticizing nurture seemed seem to be the theme for a lot of my porn use. Uh, I remember there was one porn star that I had like this extra fixation on. No, again, I don't even think she really fit my typical arousal template, but there was something about the way her eyes looked that just felt like they were seeing me. And <laughs> I, I know that's a big word for you, like being seen, right? And And so this... I don't know, this porn star, I was kind of ride or die for, and I have no idea why. Like, I couldn't tell you to this day what what drew me to her. But, I, you know, even, um, you know, we talk on, on my podcast a lot about edging. Um, I remember just even years after being in recovery, every once in a while, I would just type in the first couple letters of her name. And sometimes a you know, picture would come up or some, some, sometimes something would come up in search. Sometimes it wouldn't, but I would just type the first couple letters and go just wonder. So even years later, I was still drawn to her on some level. And, and so, but you know, now that I see the needs, I go, Oh, okay. Yeah. I was probably drawn to her. There was something about her that just somehow spoke to a small part of me that wanted to be seen. Yeah. It's so validating, isn't it? You can have compassion for yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, I think especially that's one of the benefits of long-term sobriety is the farther you get away from some of the shame and some of the, the farther you get away from that, the more you can look at it and go, oh, well, that makes sense. You know? Yeah. Um, I remember reading through Jay Stringer's book, Unwanted, and going, first of all, I was annoyed that I didn't think of this idea, you know? <laughs> earlier than James Stringer, you know, I was, and then he did it so well. He wrote such a great book, uh, that, that tied a lot of that stuff together, the childhood family systems with, with arousal templates and stuff like that. But it totally made sense for me for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your vulnerability because I think everyone can relate. We all have 
particular types of porn that we're drawn to. And for you to model what it looks like to get underneath that into the real needs is so healing. It's such a great example for us to be able to do our own work. I'll tell you something really interesting. Let me just give you a uh, postscript. I, see, I'm, de- I'm tempted to tell you what the genre was so I, c- I could make this will make more sense. You know what? I'll share it. I don't think it'll be triggering. Um, I was attracted to Indian women. And so years later, I took an Indian cooking class. First of all, the Indian cooking class was amazing. Like I learned all these different chopping techniques and how to cook. And it made this incredible food. But in the class, they were playing Indian music. And there was one song that came on that was like this haunting song from an Indian Bollywood movie, a, a, like a romance. Um, and there was a, there's a male singing and then a woman singing. And I actually asked a couple of the people in the class, I go, does anyone know what this song is? And uh, one of the women said, oh yeah, my, my mother used to watch this movie. It's this movie. Kabi Kabi, that was the name of the movie. So I had this wonderful experience at this cooking class and I get in the car to go home and I pull up this song in Spotify and I start playing it. And it's this really sweet song and it starts playing and there's these warm uh, Indian uh, instruments playing and, and this sort of beautiful song. And it was so powerful, I started weeping and I had to pull the car over because I was weeping so much. It made me go back to, even before that, the journaling and thinking about it, it was like, there's just this piece of me that has this you know, wound that's just longing for this nurture and for to be seen and to be loved. And, uh, and now after being at the cooking class and hearing the song, the access to that need is more easily accessible, right? It's not being obscured by my uh, eroticizing and by my, you know, escaping into porn, it's actually open. And, um, and I, and I still, if I play that song, I can start crying and I can't, I, I have no words for why that song or, or even Indian culture speaks to me so deeply. I cannot explain it, but I, I do. And it's interesting now, you know, now that I don't eroticize stuff and fantasize and all that kind of stuff, when I um, actually meet, you know, Indian people in a, in, and I live in a very multicultural place, I actually get excited. Like I'm, I'm like, Oh wow. You know, and, and I can just receive, like I can just be in relationship and not, you know, feel, feel good. Like that cooking class or, or, you know, just in, in friendships and stuff. So, so it's no longer triggering. No, it's not triggering at all. It's actually more like, uh, I just feel like just okay as a person. Like I don't shame myself for even having an affinity for Indian culture. Like I just like it. I just, you know, and it's funny. I was talking to someone recently, uh, I actually know Indians and stuff and, and they're like, oh, you should come to India. And I'm thinking I should like, wow. there's probably something significant for me there. It's it, there's something about that culture that, that, that resonates with me at a heart level. And it seems like a great example of something you talk about in the book, which is self-acceptance rather than self-rejection. For sure. Yeah. I accept the fact that, hey, there's, there's these places in me that are soft and there's one, one, one area of self-acceptance is 
I realize I'm much more sensitive than I realized growing up, you know, moving around and being trying to be funny to make friends. And, you know, I kind of had this thick skin and I just kind of had this picture of myself as kind of this comedian or funny guy and nothing got in and nothing hurt me. And, and now I realize, Oh, I'm more sensitive. I'm, uh, I can, yeah, I can listen to a, a Bollywood song and cry in my car. Um, I can be really moved by something, you know, and I'm sensitive too, uh, to, to things I see on TV or in the movies or, or on plays, you know, I, I now read the description of every play that I'm going to, because I've gone to two plays in the last 10 years that had sexual trauma. And I was super traumatized watching the plays. Um, I was like shaking after coming out of one of the plays. Um, and it was, there was nothing graphic, but it was very, uh, the moment that it started going one way, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong play. And I, I had fight or flight and I wanted to run out of the theater. Um, and, um, and I just now accept that it's like, oh, I'm sensitive. So I need to care, be careful what plays I see. I need to be careful about what movies I watch. There's, you know, I've, I've learned that about myself. This is such a gift. This is such a gift to give us all permission to be sensitive, to be sensitive men. So when I think of the type of man who doesn't look at porn, uh, sometimes that seems like a, a tough guy, you know, the conqueror, uh, the one who is victorious. Um, but when I really think about what helped me get lasting freedom and what I'm hearing from you is a willingness to be sensitive. And that is actually strength. Yeah, it definitely is more integrated. I think like the idea of even taking some of my painful experiences and even some of my things I'm embarrassed about and tying them together and going, well, this is who I wholly am. This is my whole person. Uh, I am the jokester. I do love rap music. And I also um, can cry <laughs> uh, in an Indian TV show. I was weeping after uh, uh, I watched an Indian TV show a couple of years ago and I cried at the end of that. And there's other things too. I, 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 I'll give you a good example. Uh, when I first got in recovery, I went to a program um, that was run by some guys in Wheaton and um, it was very powerful and um, it was very holistic too. It was about our identity in Christ and about our relationships and, and healing. There was a lot of things to it. It wasn't just about addiction and about, it wasn't about porn actually. That was the interesting thing. I was like one of the only people struggling with porn. There were other people struggling with other things. Uh, but it was men and women. And I remember um, I brought a group similar to that to my church and ran it for 11 or 12 years. And it was probably the first or second year when there were all these women coming to the group and getting help. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. I was struggling with porn and, and being, you know, fantasizing and having all these challenges with women. And now I'm actually serving women and helping create an environment where they can heal. That was so life-giving for me because all the stories I thought about myself were, I'm a porn addict. I misuse women. I'm unsafe. Women are unsafe to me. Women's bodies are unsafe to me. Right? You know, bounce your eyes, you know, right? The women's bodies are like kryptonite. And here I am now seeing women weep and get healing and share powerful things that happen to them and experience joy in the place of trauma and other things. And 
and I'm a part of this. I wow. remember there, there, you know, we, we did our ministry in, uh, in Evanston and there's a big college in Evanston and uh, a lot of college women would come to this group. And I remember thinking, here I am this kind of, you know, 40 something guy overweight. And there's all these young college women here coming and getting help. And I remember after one of the groups that we ran, a woman had heard me teach. And I guess I said, I liked American Idol. And uh, she had burned a Carrie Underwood CD for me <laughs> and wow. kind of sweetly gave it to me. And the first part of me said, oh my God, this is so affirming. And I was kind of like flattered that it was this young woman giving me the CD. And then I realized, oh, um, I'm probably like her dad's age. <laughs> and she sees me as this very safe man, like, like here I am still sort of thinking, wow, this young college girl is giving me a CD and I'm reading into it a little bit. And then I had to take a step back and go, no, I'm actually like the healthy kind of safe father figure in this room. That's what she's giving the CD to. She's not giving a CD to a guy she likes. She's giving a mm. CD to, to this safe guy. And I go, and I thought, okay, that's cool. I, I'm now in the safe, I'm in this like safe guy category, which is cool. I remember, I did remember telling some, one, one of the women on my team though, that I wasn't like a monk though. So, you know, yeah. So I still needed some boundaries. I wasn't like completely like, <laughs> but still it was kind of cool to realize that's how far I'd come. I'd come from thinking of myself as sort of this lone wolf porn you know, attic to now I'm standing up in front of a room with college women and not, you know, using them and not misusing them and being safe. Matt, I also feel like, like I want to say thank you for being a safe man for so many men around the world. Um, you talked about how what you longed for was nurture and comfort and to be seen. And, um, to me, it seems like that's, that's not only a need that you have, but a way that you help others and, and you are that safe, healthy father figure. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, and, uh, boy, it, it's pretty cool talking to you. I feel, uh, uh, I feel like there's a lot of connection. And so, so I, I know that there's probably just similar gifting too, for you, that there's places where you've been restored and there's places where, um, you know, the, uh, the power is in the wound. Yes. That's a, that's a quote from, uh, Gordon Dalby, um, another Californian actually. Hmm. Uh, he, uh, he wrote healing the masculine soul and fathers and sons. He's an older a Christian writer. Um, but he grew up in a home with an absentee father and, almost all of his books have this theme of fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember one of my friends was shuttling him. He was, he spoke at our church, I think, or spoke at a, an event. And my friend was in charge with taking him to the airport and asked him, you know, Mr. Dalby, uh, I noticed you write a lot about fatherhood and in your own story that you tell sometimes in the book, your dad wasn't really around and didn't have a strong relationship with you. And that's what Gordon Dalby said. He said the powers in the wound that mm -hmm. at some of the places where we've been wounded, even in our own choices and some of the old things that we've gotten involved with, that's where the greatest power is. Amen. Matt, um, 
for somebody who feels like they are still in the middle of their wounds, somebody who is stuck in porn and um, back in the place of, of being discouraged, of not feeling much hope, what would you like to say to that person? One thing that was hopeful for me um, was to see other guys who got freedom. Um, because there's this voice that we have that kind of says, I can never do this. I can never be free of this. Um, and even early on in my recovery, I had a friend named John. I still have a friend with We meet uh, every other week. And he's got more sobriety than me. And, um, and I remember telling myself this statement like, hey, John can do this, so can I. And, and it just cut through that lie that I can't do this, you know, um, because I saw John do it. And so that's the first thing. Matt can do this. Andrew can do this. Uh, so can I. Um, that's, that's one thing I would say. The other thing I'd say, too, and this is a story of John. When I ran that uh, ministry, uh, at the beginning of the year, we would get up in front of all the participants and welcome them in and tell a little of our story. Uh, all the leaders would go first and tell our tales of woe and our, you know, humiliations and things that we had gotten involved with and um, gotten free of. And and John uh, would say this really uh, clearly to the participants. He'd say, um, "I, um, um, you might be feeling hopeless right now, um, but I've had so much transformation in my life." Um, I have so much hope for you. And so if you're feeling like you're struggling with hope right now, believe me when I say that I'm holding hope for you. Uh, mm. And I remember hearing back from participants going, yeah, I didn't have any hope, but I did take John at his word that he hoped for me. Um, so the same way that, you know, Matt can do it, I can do it. Uh, if you're feeling hopeless right now, know that I have hope for you. And I have hope because of the, the transformation I've seen in my life and the, in the life of lots of other men. Uh, and so when you're feeling isolated, when you're kind of giving into those mistaken beliefs, just say, well, it, somewhere out there, Matt hopes, <laughs> hopes for me, has hope for me. That's so awesome. You can just borrow hope from someone else. It's true, though. I mean, um, it, it's easy for us. Uh, you know, you and I were talking right at the beginning of the, uh, before we got on the podcast about, um, you know, I've been thinking about doing a book about self-rejection. And um, and the interesting thing is we are more willing to accept that, that someone else is telling us the truth uh, than we are sometimes to tell the truth to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like if you say something very powerfully to me about my worth and identity I'm more tempted to believe you telling me that than trying to tell myself that. Um, and so I think that's the same with hope. You know, if we, you know, like I might not have hope, um, but I believe that you have hope for me. It's easier for yeah. me to believe that. That's so good. Matt, what is your favorite thing about freedom from porn? Being able to be at church and be okay with, not having to bear that burden every time I went to church where church and communion came to symbolize my failure, um, as opposed to being, uh, connected to Christ and being 
uh, hidden in Christ and some of those powerful Christian concepts like that wasn't part of my story uh, most weeks when I came to church. Um, even in relationships with women too, I've told some different women friends about my my recovery and obviously the book now, it's like <laughs> the book and the podcast. I mean, the last few years, um, everyone's kind of known my stuff um, and just being okay with that. Like, you know, like nothing in this book embarrasses me anymore or, or, or makes me feel shame. So, I mean, that's a living without shame is a, a great thing. There's nothing like it. Living without shame, lifting the burden, feeling connected to Christ and being able to relate to others without the anxiety or the arousal patterns that we used to have. Well, guys, if you want to get a copy of Porn Free, the book by Matt Dobschutz, you can find it in the link to this episode. And Matt, thank you so much for being with us. Great to meet you, Drew, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. You ever get back to the old Wheaton area? Not since COVID, but I would love to. All right. Well, next time you're in Chicago, come come visit. Okay. I'll let you know. Thanks again. And everyone, always remember, you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well-pleased. Well-pleased.